Romans chapter one, beginning in verse 18. Paul writes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because of what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing To be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In our study in the book of Romans, we've looked at Paul's salutation or introduction in verses 1 through 7. And we briefly looked at the writer Paul and the reader, the saints in Roman, the theme Christ and the gospel of salvation. We've looked at Paul's explanation for the writing in verses 8 through 17 and the theme of this most important epistle, the gospel of Jesus Christ, how it reveals the righteousness of God. A righteousness based on faith and not works available, not simply to Jews, but to all how God can make sinners saints and still satisfy both his holiness and justice. Paul has quoted Habakkuk chapter two, verse four, how the just shall live by faith. And the whole book, the rest of the book of Romans is Paul's explanation of that verse. And like a lawyer who begins to build his case, Paul will explain why righteousness is needed. The problem of sin in chapter one, in chapter two and in chapter three. And righteousness imputed or our glorious salvation and how we receive that salvation. In chapter 3, verse 21, in chapter 4, in chapter 5. Then Paul will explore the topic of sanctification in chapter 6 and 7 and 8. Sovereignty in chapters 9, 10 and 11. And service in chapter 12, all the way almost to the end of the book in chapter 15. The challenge for me is going to be to take something that's fairly complicated and make it accessible to you so that you'll be able to understand it. Peter was right in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 16 when he wrote that some things in Paul's letters are hard to understand. But he also writes that ignorant people 
and people who aren't sure of what they believe distort what Paul says in his letters the same way they distort the rest of the scriptures. And then Peter makes this incredible statement. He says those people will be destroyed. How did humanity get in such deep trouble? Why are human beings in such a dark place? And how is it that God's wrath is revealed against humanity? Paul begins his argument with the revelation of God in them, that's conscience, and unto them, that's creation in verse 19. Human beings, Paul argues, did not begin in darkness and ignorance and then gradually work their way up to reason and relationship with God. But human beings began their existence with a sweet and beautiful and blazing revelation of God in a perfect environment, a real relationship with God that included his love and his goodness and his power and his majesty and And his wisdom, it began in a garden, in truth, and in revelation. Paul's argument is that human beings turned their back on the revelation and disobedience. That God revealed himself from the very beginning of human existence. And human beings are therefore without excuse... Concerning the character of God and concerning, I'm going to suggest to you, even the plan of God. In this chapter, Paul explains how human beings refuse to glorify him as God in verses 21 through 23. And then changed or rather exchanged the truth of God for a lie in verses 24 and 25 because they rejected the knowledge of God. And here's what you have to understand. And I want you to begin to connect the dots right from the start that if you reject the revelation of God, then you're going to reject the message of God. And if you reject the revelation of God and the message, of God, then you're going to reject the truth, not just about God, but about you. Jesus characterized the people of his own time this way. He said, what an unbelieving and perverse generation you are. How long will I put up with you? He said in Mark chapter nine, verse 23, Jesus said, if you can believe all things are possible to them that believe Horatius Bonner wrote in all unbelief, there are at least two things, a good opinion of yourself and a bad opinion about God. All unbelief is the belief of a lie. A.W. Tozer solemnly warned his contemporaries, quote, every man will have to decide for himself whether or not he can afford the terrible luxury of unbelief, unquote. Paul argues that unbelievers First, suppress the truth and then pervert the truth. And the suppression and the perversion of truth ultimately leads to the corruption of life and then the depravity of mind. Paul points to a willful blindness, a deliberate rejection of revealed truth. This is followed by wicked beliefs, rationalized by wicked hearts. 
And that turns to wanton behavior. And so the gospel reveals God's righteousness. But it also reveals God's wrath. And this is the part of the gospel that generates a great deal of agitation. Of turmoil. Maybe even terror. The same Jesus who spoke the comforting words of John 3.16 and 17 also included the plain statement in John 3.18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. That the light came into the world and that men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so it begins with the suppression of the truth. Look again in verse 18. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In that opening Passage that we're looking at for the wrath of God, that word wrath it translates a Greek verb orge. It is a word that meant passion, anger, indignation. It wouldn't be incorrect to even translate this a violent passion. Now, pastors and theologians will sometimes shy away from a God who is violently upset with sin. Paul indicates that God's anger is revealed because of human ungodliness, human unrighteousness, human unbelief. But part of the point that you have to understand and that I have to understand is that God's anger is different from human anger. In what way? Well, I may get angry because I'm upset or because I'm tired or because I'm threatened or because you threaten someone in my family. But God's anger is always informed by God's perfect judgment. God's anger is always informed by his perfect perspective. God's anger is always just. God's anger is never capricious. It's never uncontrolled. It's always just. It's always proportioned. And let me sort of help you out with this. You see, there are two Greek words that are translated anger in the Bible. The first one um, is often the word tumos or thumos. You may not know that word, but we get the word thermometer from that we get the word thermos you know about thermometers and thermos a thermometer records heat and a thermos preserves heat and so in the ancient world that kind of heat that kind of anger spoke of the red hot anger of passion It was often characterized by human, uncontrolled anger. Sometimes we think of that that anger that makes a person 
snap. Have you ever done that? Has something happened where you just went, uh-oh, something just broke inside of me? Paul uses a different word. It's the word that implies controlled passion. It's a passion that's never compromised by injustice. It's never polluted or perverted because of the presence of personal sin. Because God is perfect and God is holy and God is just and God is righteous. And you need to understand something. God's anger is never, ever directed at goodness. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? God isn't angry with goodness. God is holy. God's anger is directed at all the ungodliness and the wickedness of men. One of the things that I need to help you understand is that you should never, ever, ever underestimate the goodness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. The love of God. But you shouldn't underestimate God's hatred of sin. Or his anger towards sin. And Paul will give us reasons why the ungodly and the unbelieving world are under the, the wrath of God. And the reason why they're under the wrath of God is because they're trying to cover up sin. How then does God This loving God, this merciful God, this gracious God, who is also just and who is absolutely opposed to sin. How do you reconcile these two things? Well, let me answer the question, not just simply from a theological standpoint, but from a practical standpoint, from a realistic standpoint. Let me ask you a question. Are you a parent? Do you love your children? You may not be a parent. Is there anyone you love? Is there anything that you love? Is there anything that you care about? Are you angry with anyone or anything that threatens your loved one? You see, the truth is God's anger never operates absent or independent from God's love. God expresses his anger on your behalf for your good. Whoever touches the apple of my eye, you remember in Zechariah chapter two, verse 18, there is an indignation that wells up in a just and a holy God who is not happy with anything. That hinders the perfect plan and the perfect purpose of your life that he has for you. Have you ever stopped to think about that? There's a reason why God hates sin. He hates sin because of what it's done to you. And what it's done to me. Has sin robbed you? Has sin taken advantage of you? Has it destroyed your thinking or perverted your life or upset your sensibilities? At the heart of unbelief is a lie. It's the lie about the nature of God and it's a lie about the plan of God. It's a lie about the character of God. And so what are some of the potent ingredients that go into unbelief? Paul is going to point out it begins with a generous helping of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness or wickedness. In other words, the suppression in part 
is intentional. It's not passive. The picture is restraining or suppressing by force. Much like if you wanted to drown a person who was desperately wanting to remain alive. You know, it might be fun at a pool party to have some fun and splash in the water. Someone may even hold their breath underwater to see how long they can stay underwater. And someone might even be foolish enough to say, well, look, let me hold you down and let's see how long you'll last. And it might be fun the first five seconds. But then 10 seconds and then 15 seconds and then 20 seconds. And then pretty soon you are grasping for air. That's what sin does. It holds your head under the water. Some of you are old enough to remember drive-in movies. Most of you are not. But back in the day, there were theaters. And when I was a kid, when you went to the movie theater, when you went to the drive-in theater, they would usually charge according to by carload. Now, every once in a while, they would charge admission on the basis of how many people were in the vehicle. Now, I know you never did this. But silly me and my friends, sometimes we would try to sneak people into the drive-in by hiding them in the trunk. And we would say, don't knock on the trunk. You need to be quiet. Imagine we treat sin like the latch that keeps popping open. Another illustration would be like a child who tries to sneak a puppy into a room. Imagine a four-year-old or a five-year-old. They want their kitten or their dog in their room, so they stick the doggy in the box and they put a lid. But no matter how hard you try, the doggy keeps going. Hey, what's in the box? Nothing, Mom. Nothing, Dad. We suppress sin. The idea of suppression here is a continual, aggressive striving against the truth. And God's anger is directed towards the people who are constantly looking for ways to keep the truth quiet. So Paul opens our eyes to the fact that all people apart from Christ are in the process of holding the truth down. And because they're holding the truth down, they're subject to God's abiding anger. And that's the world in which we live. As you watch television, as you as you read articles on the Internet, as you listen to to people in your life who are constantly trying to tell you that the Bible isn't true and the revelation about God isn't true and the issue of sin isn't true and so therefore salvation is not true and this is the danger in verse 19 it says because what may be known of god is manifest in them for god has shown it to them this is what paul argues paul argues not that there's a bunch of dark 
desperate people who don't know anything about God. Paul argues that the heathen aren't lost because they don't have the gospel. The lost are not lost simply on the basis of what they do have. The lost are lost on the basis of what they do have. What do the lost have? They have creation and they have their conscience. They have the real world in which they're living. Paul argues they reject even the little light that they possess. Paul argues God has left all people with the same revelation of himself. You see, whether you want to believe it or not, kids are born believing that there's a God. You have to teach them that there's no God. Imagine a person says to you, hey, look around you. You look around. Where did all this come from? It came from nothing. You're, you're messing with me, right? How does nothing become something? It just did. Why? No good reason. So here's what you want me to believe. Nothing became something for no good reason. Yeah. Now, I want you to think of the absurdity issue. Nothing becomes something for no good reason. God creates something out of nothing for the purpose of love and friendship and fellowship. Oh, you crazy religious nut. What a basket case you are. Only a nut would believe something like that. Really? You think it's more intellectually satisfying that nothing became something for no good reason? What exactly are the ungodly and the unrighteous men trying to suppress? It's the knowledge of God. Why? Because with the knowledge of God comes an understanding of the character of God. Why? Because with the knowledge of God and the character of God and the revelation of Jesus Christ comes the understanding that there is an all powerful God who really did create the heavens and the earth, who loves you. And imagine. If you cannot believe what the Bible says about God. And if you cannot believe what the Bible says about Jesus, then you don't have to believe what the Bible says about sin. They invite you to believe that our existence is based on a series of blind, random coincidences for no good reason. Paul argues in verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul argues since the creation of the world, from the beginning of human existence, God had a witness that even the creation of the world stands in stark testimony to the reality of a creator. And Paul reminds the Roman reader, human history began with human beings. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible says that he created everything that exists and that he created human beings out of the dust of the earth. All human beings are exposed to the witness of creation. 
and conscience both tell us something about God. But not everything. The something that it tells us about God includes the invisible attributes. What are his invisible attributes? Omnipotence. Omniscience. Power. Self-existence. Goodness and justice. And the internal circumstances of our life, because we have a conscience, the moment that you draw the conclusion that something is right and something is wrong, it implies that there's a lawgiver and you never have a keener sense of justice than when someone acts in an unjust way towards you. If they hit you or slap you or lie to you. What kind of a God could make the known universe? What kind of a God has the power and wisdom necessary to bring all of creation under his subjection? The atheist and the materialist says, well, there's a force. There's a power. There's an agent. There's small G.O.D. There are forces, powers, nature. There are things at work, matter, energy. But then how do you explain conscience and self-awareness? Because the moment that a person says, well, what if it's not true? I think I've told you the story in philosophy class how... How a professor was opening his remarks and he says, thank you all for coming. I'm glad that you're here. And a kid said, how do you know we're here? And he said, who, who shall I say is asking? The very fact that you affirm your reality is proof that you are real. There's something wrong in the world in which we live. Nature doesn't really know about forgiveness. Nature's rules are relentless and ruthless. Nature's punishments are swift. It doesn't teach moral codes, or if it does, it's only few. It offers no definition, no explanation, or no solution for the problem of guilt and the problem of sin. It doesn't give mention of a savior that people apart from Christ suppress the truth about Christ and about God. So there are things about God that can be known that are self-evident. Paul writes, what may be known about God is manifest in them. Creation implies a creator. Design implies a designer. Injustice implies that there is justice. Our DNA is a biological code which implies a divine encoder. The origin of the universe implies an originator. What has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning and therefore the universe had a cause. Human belief will fall into three broad categories, theism or deism, where there is a self-existent God who's separate and distinct from his creator. Pantheism is the idea that an impersonal force occupies all of the known reality and is in, it, in itself reality. It's called philosophical monism. And last and certainly least is philosophical naturalism or materialism, which suggests that existence consists of matter and energy and time and seeks to 
explain reality apart from deity, but philosophical materialism fails to abandon all forms of deity, but rather elects to trust in a deity that they themselves create called fortune or chance. You see, the philosophical materialist will always say, how did things happen? Luck, chance, fortune. How did something become nothing? We're not sure, but it sure was lucky. How did inorganic material become organic? We're not sure, but what luck, huh? That just the right of molecules, peptides, that just the right amount of proteins gathered together in order to create reality. How did it happen? Luck, pure stinking luck. And how did organic material become self-aware and conscience? You can only... Good fortune. They imbue fortune and chance with all of the attributes of God in order to provide some sort of reasonable explanation for reality. So in order to explain existence, they have to suppress the truth about God and what the Bible says about God. Many years ago, on a visit to England, a wealthy Chinese businessman was fascinated by the powerful microscope. And he took a microscope and he would look through the lens to study crystals and petals of flower. And he was amazed at the beauty and the symmetry and the design. And so he thought, I've got to take one of these back to China with me. So he bought the microscope. He took it back to China. And then he decided, hey, you know what? I'm going to look under the microscope at this rice that we're having for dinner. And he looks at the grains of rice and he sees little critters crawling all over the surface of the rice. And he became dismayed and upset. He was upset because he was very fond of rice. And he concluded that there's only one way out of the dilemma. He took the microscope and he smashed it against the wall. And that's what people do. They take the lens of the Bible and they crush it because they can't believe what the Bible says about God and they can't believe what the Bible says about goodness and about grace and about the problem of sin and the solution to sin. And so they suppress the truth knowingly and willingly. Rabbi Zacharias has an interesting illustration of the challenge we face sharing Christ in a culture that is reluctant to believe in absolute truth. He wrote, a pre-modern baseball umpire would have said something like this. There's balls and there's strikes and I call them as they are. The modernist says there's balls and there's strikes and I call them as I see them. And the postmodernist umpire would say there ain't nothing until I call them. He's right. Human beings apart from Christ may make a conscious effort to suppress the truth, but the truth continues to scratch and crawl and cry out. Every time you look up at the sky, 
Every time you walk on the earth. Every time you see your grandchildren. And you love them so much. And so when suppression doesn't work, people move forward. It's not enough that they'll suppress the truth because guess what? It continues to cry out so they feel obligated to distort the truth and eventually to deny the truth and then pervert the truth. And with the denial and the perversion of truth and the misapplication comes the perversion of the human heart. Look at the perversion of truth in verse 21, because although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. What are the consequences when you willfully, knowingly deny the power of God and then you willfully and knowingly deny the person of God? What happens when you dismiss the revelation of God? You are left with only one other option. Your opinion. Oh, that's not what I think. But the revelation of God says this, but that's not what I think. And so you elevate your opinion above the identity and the revelation of God. You glorify human reason and human intellect above the revelation of God and create the basis for false religion and unbelief. I want you to think for a moment using your God-given brain just for a moment in order for unbelief to take hold. The knowledge and the revelation of God has to slip away. And so what happens when we consciously remove God from his throne? When you remove God from his throne, you remove God from your thinking. And man becomes consciously irreligious. Without the revelation of God, man gropes for answers. And science may tell us a great deal about our environment and our existence, but it stubbornly refuses to answer the question, why? You're here. Why? Don't know. Outside of my realm of expertise. Do you die? Yes. What happens when you die? I don't know. Why do we even live? I don't know. Science can tell you all of the different varieties of flowers, but it can't tell you which is the most beautiful. And which is the most fragrant. And so. Not only does man become consciously irreligious, he becomes consequently irrational. And God emphatically declares that such a man's heart is darkened. Because when you reject God and you reject the revelation of God and you reject the character of God and you reject the knowledge of God, then you reject also the message of God. And you also reject the reality of the problem that we have. God emphatically declares that such a man's heart is darkened and all of his claims to wisdom, notwithstanding the man who has dethroned God from his intellect, becomes conceited. No offense. Stupid. Unintelligent. You know, nothing 
makes an intelligent person more angry than when you say to them, I don't think you're smart at all. Tom Stipe used to say that sin makes you stupid. A molecular biologist in the 1960s who was famous for his work on the DNA molecule and its incredible complexity made the comment in the 1960s, quote, it seems pretty certain to me that life resulted from purely chemical events. What's more, I feel certain that in another decade or two, we're past those decades, by the way, by many years, we ourselves will be able to create life. I no longer feel it necessary to believe in God, unquote. A clergyman from the same period published a rebuttal to the statement he wrote, when a biochemist is able to create matter and energy out of nothing, then I say he's approaching the power of God. And when he has the power to imbue life with an immortal soul, then let's have a conversation. No wonder Paul writes in verse 22, professing to be wise They became fools. By the way, foolish human wisdom rejects God and accepts its own unproven opinion, which moves invariably from agnosticism or atheism to idolatry. In the 1969 film Easy Rider, which starred Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper, in a scene in the movie, one of the characters makes the statement, if God doesn't exist, man would have to invent him. In 1969, that was a very cool thing to say. And all false gods are human inventions. But there's a true and a living God. As a matter of fact, in verse 22, where it says, professing themselves to be wise, the word translated wise isn't just a person who's street smart. I'm going to suggest to you it means educated, it means cultured, it means enlightened. The word fools is related to an English word moron, which in this case, it doesn't mean the absence of intelligence or the absence of education, but it's a reference to an immoral heart. Is it true that some of the smartest people in the whole wide world don't believe in God? That is true. Is it true that some of the smartest people in the whole wide world do believe in God? That's true as well. But remember why the smart people who don't believe in God don't believe in God. It isn't based on their intelligence. But it's based on a darkened heart that wants to continue in sin Human reason is corrupt in at least three different ways. They became vain in their reasonings. Their foolish heart was darkened. They became fools. That's what it says. Vain in their reason. Foolish in their heart. Bertrand Russell had a great mind. But it was a human mind. He wrote a little book entitled Why I'm Not a Christian. This is what he wrote. There's one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character. And that is he believed in hell. 
I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Christ, certainly as depicted in the Gospels, did believe in everlasting punishment. And one does find repeatedly a vindictive fury against those who would not listen to his preaching. You do not, for instance, find that attitude in Socrates. You find him quite bland and urbane towards the people who would not listen to him. And it is, to my mind, far more worthy of a sage to take that line than to take the line of indignation. Do you understand what Bertrand Russell is saying? He's accusing Jesus of being morally flawed. He's accusing Jesus of having a morally defective character. He offers the explanation that he's morally flawed and he has a defective character. Because God might be concerned about sin. And have to find a solution to the problem of sin. You know what Bertrand Russell fails to do? He fails to explain how this morally flawed character pleased his father in every way and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the father. And so Paul writes. And they change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four footed animals and creeping things. Because make no mistake about it, human beings don't dismiss the reality of God. They just simply substitute him in a way that will accommodate their reasoning and their sin And so the corruption of life, look what it says. They don't get rid of God. They substitute God. And the essence of idolatry is to entertain false views about God and make no mistake about it. The Bible teaches that if you have a wrong view of God, you are, by very definition, an idolater. No wonder A.W. Tozer said, The most important thing about you is probably what you think about God. And I would add probably the most important thing about you is what God thinks about you. Who exchange the truth of God. In verse 24, it says, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, the lust of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Paul argues that the suppression of truth and the perversion of truth and idolatry will of necessity lead to the corruption of life. If a man is his own God, then he can do whatever he pleases and fulfill whatever desires without the fear of judgment. The NIV translates it this way. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Look at that expression. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness. 
or sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Earlier, Paul talked about God's wrath as being evident. Now he talks about how God's wrath is made known. And the knowledge of his wrath should shock you. It should surprise you. It should overwhelm you. Because part of the manifestation of God's wrath takes place when God allows people to do exactly what they want. I don't believe in God. I know. I don't believe in the Bible. I know. I don't believe what the Bible says about sin. I know. I don't believe what the Bible says about sex. Pretty clear to me. And because I don't believe in what the Bible says about God and because I don't believe what the Bible says about Christ and because I don't believe what the Bible says about sin. I think I'm going to do whatever I want. And then they do. Whatever they want. I want you to think carefully about the passage of scripture that you're reading. Human beings suppress the majestic revelation of God, which leads to the perversion of truth, which leads to a man-centered view of reality, which leads to idolatry, which leads to a focus on yourself, which leads not to the elevating of human dignity, but to the dehumanization of the human being. Who's made in the image and the likeness of God. And with the denial comes an invitation to act on every kind of bizarre and perverse sexual sin that's available. Paul claims that we sin because we're not satisfied with God. We're not happy with the revelation of God. We're not happy with the message of God. We're not happy with the word of God, and so we take up arms against God. No wonder God is so angry with sin. Because sin always takes you farther than you really wanted to go. And it keeps you longer than you intended to stay. And it costs you way more than you intended to pay. You see, the Bible's message is give up sin or give up hope. And do you know what the unbeliever does? The unbeliever says, I can't give up my sin, so I'm going to give up hope. But you see, the truth is, if you will believe the message of God and the revelation of God and the truth about God and the gospel of God, guess what else you get to believe? The truth about Jesus and the truth about salvation. You get to believe that your sin can be forgiven and covered. That it's not imputed to you. That it can be removed from you. That it can be blotted out. That it can be cast into the sea. That it can be remitted. That it can be taken away. That it can be purged. You mean the Bible says I don't have to get rid of my own sin? No. I don't have to forgive my own sin? No. You mean God has provided a satisfying solution to the problem of sin and I can experience forgiveness and hope? Yes! Apart from God and Christ? No. 
Because that's the message. It's the truth about God. The truth about his character. The truth about you. The truth about sin. The truth about salvation. Now you understand a little bit better why God is so angry with sin. Because it takes you away from what you need the most. A right relationship with him. But we have to stop now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom of the word. And we thank you for the revelation of the Bible. Lord, it's amazing that Paul wrote these things so long ago. And people were struggling with the exact same issues that we're struggling with today. What kind of a God is God? What's real? What's true? How can a loving God be forever upset with sin? And we know why. Because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus the Lord. And so, Lord, I pray for that person who genuinely wonders... Does what the Bible say about God, is it real? Can I trust the way the Bible represents God? And can I trust the the Bible and its message about God? And the solution to the problem of sin. Can I trust what the Bible says about forgiveness and about hope? And Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would issue the invitation that we can know you and that we can love you and that we can experience forgiveness and hope and that our sins can be dealt with, removed, blotted out, cast away, remitted, purged. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.